This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Fabry disease is a progressive disorder that affects organs throughout the body, including the heart, kidneys, and nervous system. People with the condition may suffer for years before obtaining a diagnosis. Jack Johnson, who co-founded the Fabre Support and Information Group, traced Fabre disease back more than five generations in his family. We spoke to Johnson about his own experience with the condition, his journey into advocacy, and a recent externally-led patient-focused drug development meeting to help regulators and drug developers understand the need for new therapies to address the challenges of living with the disease. Jack, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for uh, having me on the the episode. We're going to talk about Fabry disease, the challenges of living with the condition, and your efforts to change misconceptions about Fabry with regulators and, and others. Let's start with Fabre itself. For listeners not familiar with it, what is it? Well, Fabre is a rare lysosomal storage disease that, that really results when the body is not able to make enough of or any at all a certain enzyme to break down a lipid substance. Uh, in our case, um, this enzyme is alpha-galactosidase A, and it breaks down a, a lipid material, a GB3, that builds up in the cells throughout the body and causes damage. And um, this uh, condition affects both uh, males and females. How does the condition manifest itself and progress? Well, the, the classic form of the disease, the more severe form, uh, usually starts in childhood, in school-aged children, and oftentimes is burning in the hands and feet. Um, there can also be problems with uh, reduced sweating, uh, heat intolerance, even cold intolerance. Uh, lots of kids miss school because of uh, GI problems, diarrhea, stomach pain. Um, and there are other symptoms, a lot of other symptoms that go along with it. and can develop over time. Uh, these symptoms can interfere with school, sports, uh, social activities, and work. Uh, it can lead to more severe organ uh, involvement, such as chronic kidney disease, and lead to kidney failure requiring um, dialysis or transplant. Also, heart problems are a big issue. And there are uh, conduction arrhythmia issues with the heart and, and oftentimes cardiac enlargement. Uh, 
Uh, and these can, of course, lead to heart attacks. Uh, there's also TIAs or, or mini strokes that can happen and uh, uh, full-blown strokes. Uh, so there are other symptoms that go along, but oftentimes this can lead to an average for a shorter lifespan with women of about 15 years and men about 20 years. You were diagnosed with the condition many years ago. How were you diagnosed with it and, and how is it generally diagnosed today? Yeah, so my family story is my grandfather was diagnosed by a small town country doctor in a small rural farm town in, in Missouri. And, um, and that also allowed others in the family that were suffering to uh, get a diagnosis. And um, from that, Fabre is uh, rare and there is a lot of misdiagnosis associated with Fabre disease. And, and so my, my grandfather, he really got his diagnosis because he was going into kidney failure and the, and the doctor just realized it didn't fit other things. My mother saw the signs in me when I was four. Um, and uh, I got my official diagnosis finally when I was seven. Uh, for getting other people today, oftentimes optometrists or dermatologists can spot the, there are a few outward signs, but uh, there are two that, that are in the skin and in the eyes that can be spotted. Also nephrologists oftentimes will diagnose Fabre if they do a kidney biopsy on someone that's having chronic kidney disease problems. And then uh, when that first person in the family is diagnosed, it leads to others and some newborn screening is happening as well. There are available therapies for Fabry disease, but it's not a part of newborn screening in all states. What is the state of newborn screening and any sense why some states don't include it or what, what it will take to get them to include it if it's not already part of their screen? Sure. So newborn screening um, is done on a state-by-state -state basis. So different states have their own ideas on what they would like to screen, and it, it varies quite a bit. Um, so so that's kind of the, the status. And it, oftentimes when newborn screening for Fabry and other LSDs um, has been instituted, particularly with Fabry, they find boys, but not the girls. Uh, because girls can have normal levels of what they're looking for. Um, there are uh, Oregon, Missouri, Illinois, Tennessee, Maryland, and New Jersey are currently screening. Uh, we have submitted to the states of Georgia and Utah requesting that they begin screening Fabry disease. And one thing that really helps to get states to screen for conditions is to get that condition listed on the recommend, recommended Uniform Screening Panel, or RUSP, which is a federal um, list of recommended conditions. And another thing that can help is states have started instituting rules that if a condition ends up on RUSP, they will automatically then start screening for it. And with Fabry disease, there's about 10 states where that could help um, improve screening uh, because of those rules. Um, some states have not included Fabre due to funding issues and 
resources to do proper follow-up. But uh, also Fabry is usually not treated in the newborn era or, um, and is treated later in life. So that's an, another issue with Fabry and some of the other lysosomal storage disorders. You had gone through a, a recounting of, of your own family history with Fabre. It, it speaks to, I think, the importance of knowing a, a family history of health um, around genetic diseases. How did you come to know the history? Did it require a lot of work on your part? Was this something that was just shared with the family? Yeah, and it really was shared in the family. And so I'd heard the family stories um, of the individuals that really suffered with this condition. And it was, of course, very mysterious in the beginning. But like I'd said, uh, a, a doctor figured it out with my grandfather. Um, and I had an uncle that did extensive genealogy work on our family. And so there were a lot of resources there. Also my mother who knew the stories, knew all the relatives and everything, understood you know, who was related to who. And, and so with all of that, she helped me to work to put together a family tree that followed not a specific family name, but rather a condition um, uh, back through. And then we also found distant relatives that when we did the family tree, there was a connection you know, generations back is where the connection was made. And those uh, family relatives that suffered from Fabry as well were related to us. We knew so then by looking back on the tree, we could verify how far back it actually went. And we traced it back uh, five generations. People can talk about diseases from a, a biologic perspective. They can talk about the, the symptoms and the manifestations, but what's it actually like to live with Fabre? Yeah, so Fabre is, is a very difficult condition. It has a high impact on quality of life. Like I discussed, you know, the pain can be a real problem. Um, GI, uh, temperature intolerances, hearing losses can, and dizziness or tinnitus or ringing in the ears can be a problem. Uh, you can have dizzy spells. Lots of patients suffer depression. Fatigue can be a real issue. And, and there are other symptoms. Um, you also, you never know really when you may get hit with a spell of you know severe GI pain or pain in the burning in the hands and feet can can really be distressing and cause a lot of impact. Um, and one of the things that might help people relate is they've probably heard about uh, long COVID symptoms on media and fat, just the general day to day things with, that many fabric patients experience can be very similar to what I've heard long COVID is like. Um, there, there are more severe symptoms such as a pain crisis that can hit. And these can be very debil debilitating for hours to days sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, the stomach pain can, can really get severe for people. You can have fevers for, for no known reason. And lots of times, if you have one of these fevers, it brings on a pain crisis. Or if you get a fever from an infection or catching the flu or something like that, that will start up a pain crisis. Some patients have trouble with throwing up. 
um, so out shortly after eating. And of course, they can go into kidney failure, cardiac disease, and stroke. So it has a large impact on, on people's quality of life. Enzyme replacement therapy for Fabry disease has been available for more than 20 years. How effective is this, and is there a need for new or better treatments? Well, ERT or enzyme replacement therapy certainly helps. It helps to um, stabilize kind of in, uh, many people for a period of time, and uh, it uh, can c- help with pain and, and a number of the different symptoms, some of the GI symptoms and so forth. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't help everybody the same. And um, one of the things that studies have shown is that it can slow disease progression, but not necessarily stop it. Uh, There can be a point of no return, essentially, on kidney involvement. Um, So you may go into kidney failure, but it could could take several more years or longer for that to happen. So there are areas where it really helps and some areas where it doesn't. Some patients, they don't really notice a difference in symptoms after um, going on to ERT. Uh, that can be discouraging. Uh, there's still continuing unmet medical need because of these, these symptoms, and there can be infusion reactions. Um, most people can be worked through those, but not everybody, and some people have to discontinue ERT. They just can't tolerate it. And also these infusions can be, you know, rather burdensome. It can take anywhere from a couple hours to eight, possibly even 10 hours sometimes to receive an infusion. And um, you're doing this every two weeks, so it can make vacations and travel schedules and things like that uh, rather difficult. And then because not everybody gets, sees real benefit, uh, right away, or on what they were hoping for, they may start skipping um, infusions. And sometimes when patients go off a of treatment and then start treatment back up again, they can have infusion reactions all over. Uh, so that can be very challenging. And um, some people, and you know, one of the things that that people really want from treatment is just to to feel like they're normal. Um, and, and unfortunately, that doesn't happen with a large enough percentage of the community. When uh, a patient finds they can't tolerate the infusions or their schedule is overwhelmed and they put off getting one, or, or even if they discontinue because they feel they're not seeing benefit, what's the long-term health consequence of that? Well, you know, one of the big problems is that disease progression. Uh, starts back in. So, um, you know, some patients, they may have an increase in pain, actually, whenever they start. Some don't, but some do. And and that can lead to going off a of treatment. And when you're skipping these treatments, um, infusion reactions can, well, I always said, can be worse if they start to go back on. And, you know, the main thing is is just disease progression occurs and uh, organ involvement can can uh, really catch up with people sometimes unexpectedly as a result. You founded the Febre Support and Information Group. 
How did you become involved in patient advocacy and what led you to create the FSIG? Yeah, so I was um, uh, participating in a research program and the doctor there um, who was studying Fabry disease, he really is the one that pushed me uh, to do this. It wasn't something I ever saw coming or ever thought about. Um, I was doing computer work. And he really pushed saying that there was there was no community or no organization for Fabre. And so finally, um, I decided that maybe we could try and get something going, but we weren't given any idea of what or how to do it or anything. So we thought, well, you know, maybe we could gather information and do a newsletter and get that going. And and then I was able to put together a website because of my computer background and my family really helped me out and we got that website going. And that's when people started really finding us because we started out with less than 20 people we knew of. So yeah, it just really grew from there. In September, you spoke with the FDA at an externally led focused drug development meeting What's the purpose of these meetings and why do they matter? Yeah, so the patient-focused drug development meetings are a really important means for uh, organizations to get with the FDA and actually have patients speak directly with members from the FDA. And they get to to hear the the needs and the wants from the patient community uh, directly from, from a number of different people. So... This is a a very important pathway and can be very powerful in getting a community's needs um, communicated to the FDA and also uh, to uh, drug companies that that listen in on these things and can hear about different aspects of the disease that are not being addressed appropriately and can hopefully develop drugs and treatments that will do a better job of targeting those um, those aspects. And so, uh, you know, that that's a, a really important aspect as well as the FDA working with the pharmaceutical companies to help design uh, trial protocols that are gonna address these needs and hopefully reach trial endpoints that will then lead to uh, drug approvals and uh, uh, improved therapies for patients. In the world of rare diseases, this is one that's generally better known. There are two approved therapies for it in a long-standing and established patient community. Nevertheless, when you spoke to the FDA, you talked about common misconceptions about Fabry disease. What are some of the common misconceptions? Right. So yes, Fabry is uh, well-known within the the rare disease community, but that's a fairly small community. You get out of there and doctors, you know, most doctors have never heard of Fabry or maybe remember it was on a test question they had to take going through school and that's all they knew. Um, So there's still uh, old information that doctors um, were taught that females with Fabry disease don't really suffer because it's an excellent condition. But that's just totally wrong. We know today that that most women with Fabry disease will suffer uh, from the disease, will have disease impact, 
And some of those can be just as severe as what's seen with uh, any male. And also, you know, um, patients, they, they know more than their doctors usually about the disease. And so we need to get more information out there. Now, what's the consequence of having these misconceptions? Well, patients, you know, go into a doctor's office, they've never heard of Fabry disease, and they have to teach the doctor, they have to explain what Fabry disease is. And, you know, they feel that it should be the other way around. Um, but that's, you know, that's an issue that with many of the rare diseases. Um, also, you know, the many doctors just don't get how Im much of an impact the disease can have on one's quality of life because that's what patients live with most of the time. It's, you know, they don't feel their kidneys getting worse. They don't necessarily feel their heart getting worse. Um, you don't feel that a stroke may be coming on, but you feel all of these other quality of life issues, the pain, the, the GI problems, the fatigue, uh, dizziness, uh, hearing loss, you know, all of these types of things. And they hit you, that's what you live with day to day. And then finally, um, the organ involvement becomes a big issue, but much later in life normally. So, you know, those are our constant battles for the community. And what were the takeaways from the meeting? Well, um, the takeaways were that that um, the the community's voice is really being heard. The FDA is is listening. There there's still significant unmet medical need that needs to be addressed with these continuing symptoms. Even though treatment uh, does help, it doesn't eliminate these. And um, the patient community really wants more convenient treatment options are, are needed in the future and the fact, you know, that, that females suffer with the disease and have significant impact is uh, is very important. And, and since there's so much misunderstanding of the disease and it's not well known, there's a lot of uh, misdiagnosis and even under, you know, diagnosis, lots of patients that go many, many years um, and never you know, get get a correct diagnosis. So, so those were all significant issues that that came from the meeting. Now, what are you doing to leverage the outcomes from the meeting and ensure that others see it and act on it? Well, one of the things that will come from the meeting that um, hasn't been released yet is a voice of the patient summary report, and sharing that with um, with in the patient community and with the physician and research community with, with the pharmaceutical industry will help spread the message of, of the Fabry disease and the needs that they, they have. Also, um, you know, on the female side of things, we're going to be uh, having a, our first Fabry Women's Summit in November this year. And uh, we're looking forward to that and helping spread information uh, within the, the female patient community and address the special needs that they have. And we will be continuing our advocacy work, of course, um, with the medical professionals and pharmaceutical industry, uh, general public whenever we can. And so the outcomes from this meeting will be a, a big part of the message that we share. 
Jack Johnson, founder and executive director of the Fabray Support and Information Group. Jack, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.